Well, this morning, uh, I get the privilege of bringing you the word. Um, Pastor Ted uh, didn't know what I was going to be preaching on, and it just so happens he gave me a perfect introduction last week. If you recall, uh, he ended his message about who we are and what we carry with us, and that's our testimony. And he based it on John chapter 9. And one of the questions that he asked us to, to ponder on last week is, what practical steps can you take to become a more faithful witness of Jesus? And that's our testimony, one of the things anyway. And so this morning, I'm going to attempt to infuse my testimony into a sermon. And by doing that, we're going to be looking into the Gospel of Jim. So if you want to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Jim. Oh, I'm just kidding, obviously. If you, if you do have a Gospel of Jim in your Bible, then we need to talk, okay? <laughs> Actually, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, if you want to open your Bibles there. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at one of the miracles of Jesus and what's unique about John's gospel is that he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. And the reason why he calls them signs is because he wanted to convey a message behind each miracle of Jesus. And it's not like he didn't see many more other miracles, but John only records eight versus the 58 in the other three gospels. And in this message here that we're going to see in this miracle, the message behind it is that he's going to show Jesus not only his deity, but also his messiahship. And not only that, he's going to show some characteristics of, of godliness in Jesus' life and how he has the power of God as creator and maker. Because we're going to see his omniscience in this, in this passage here. And not only that, we're always going to see him as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And at the end of the story, which really gets to me is the part where we see Jesus as the good shepherd seeking out the one lost sheep. And so we're going to read together John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this... There was a great feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now certain men... A certain man was there who had an infirmity of 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that I had already been in that condition for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered in him, said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, going back up to the beginning of our story here, I want to paint a picture for you. How many of you have ever been to Israel? A few of you. Uh, you know the Israel is not very big, and Jerusalem is extremely small. Back in that day, uh, they estimated that the population in Jesus' time was anywhere from 40 to 50 or 70,000, and that's just in Jerusalem alone. Jerusalem is the size of about 200, a little over 220 acres, 
which is about 0.35 miles uh, square feet. And I say all this because when you look at this verse, verse 3, the population during the time of feast would rise up to 250,000 and plus, even more than that. And so when it says that this great multitude, when it talks about a great multitude, that word multitude means fullness, it means a large number. So when the word great is added, it means that, that there's too many to count. And so you kind of picture in your mind what's going on here. You're seeing these people, these sick people laying here, just probably piled on each other because if you look at today, when you look at that pool, it's not very big and that location is not very big. So these people had to just be coming from all over, just being, uh, just laying there, just sick and all kinds of just different diseases. Actually, that word, uh, what it talks about, it says sick people. The King James uses the word impotent folk. And that word impotent actually means to be feeble in any sense. It's talking about every disease you can think of, uh, being sick, being weak, which would cover the physical, the mental, and the emotional. And so their, their hope, their whole hope is in this healing water. And this word, Bethesda, the name of the pool, uh, is taken from this, the phrase, the house of mercy or the house of grace, grace, and rightfully so. Now, one more thing is before we move on, verses 3 and 4, if you weren't reading the King James or the New King James, uh, verses 3 and 4 kind of disappear in the other versions because they're not there. And the reason why is because there's no certainty that they, these verses were in the original text. Uh, it talks about this miracle water or this angel that came and stirred it up. And there's all kinds of opinions of what this really means or what kind of water this really was. Uh, and I believe that it was added in there because of what it says in verse 7 when Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? He says, well, there's no one here to put me into the pool. And so that, that is uh, translated in that way. But there was this water and it must have been a belief back then. Uh, as far as what this healing water was, no one knows for sure. Uh, some say it was probably a hot springs that maybe had this mineral that would actually heal some people of some diseases, uh, but we don't know for sure. But the point is that it paints a picture of what's really taking place here, the desperation of these people, not only desperation to be healed, but also the desperation of just believing in this water and really taking their focus off of who they should be believing in. And you see that desperation, especially in this man when Jesus approaches him. You hear it in his voice in verses 6 and 7. When Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? He says, I have no one, no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, we don't know for sure what kind of disease this man had. Some say it was blindness. I kind of tend to think it was more of a crippling disease because obviously he couldn't make his way to the pool fast enough. I mean, who knows? I mean, he was probably being stepped on while other people were, you know, stampeding their way into this water because it was being stirred up. But we know this for sure that he was desperate. And when I look at these two passages of Scripture here about him uh, being in that state of uh, body physically, but also emotionally, not only was his body dying, but his heart was dying. He had given up hope of ever being healed or ever being made well. Well, I want to look at this next section here, verses 5 and 6, which I think is probably one of the keys of this passage. John does an excellent job throughout his gospel to point out Jesus as being all-knowing. And he says here in verses 5 and 6, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew already that he had been there in that condition a long time. This word knew in the Greek is the word gnosko, and you probably have heard of this word before. It means to know with absolute certainty. Jesus knew exactly what this man was doing there, what he needed, how long he had been there. He knows everything about this man. And that's the omniscience of Jesus. And when I think about this, I think about the application of this for you and I. Because when I think about Jesus knowing all things about my life and, 
You know, he knows things that, you know, I wish he didn't know about, but he does. He knows everything, and it gives me such a great security knowing that he knows that. And the reason why I say that, because he carries me through everything, and he always continues to do that. And when you think about, you ever read Psalm 139, David's psalm, what he wrote in that psalm? I mean, he, he pretty much points out this, this picture here that we're seeing here of Jesus being all-knowing. He says, you understand me. He says, you know my words before I'm even going to say them. You know my rising up, my sitting down. He says, you know, even if I try to flee from you, you're always there. Everywhere I go, you're there. I can't get away from you. You're always there, which is a good thing. And he knows exactly what you're going through right now. And some of you are here this morning, and you're going through your battles and through your struggles right now. And I know that, and I understand that. But he even knows when we're going to stumble. I love that about him. He knows when I'm going to stumble. It says in Psalm 37, another Psalm of David, he says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, and that word though in the Hebrew actually means when, like you're going to fall, so be prepared. When or though you fall, he shall not utterly be cast down. Why? Because the Lord upholds him. The Lord holds him up with his hand. The Lord never lets go. He knows when you're going to stumble. Another Psalm of David was Psalm 56. He said, you number my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. And he says, are they not all written in your book? He knew exactly everything about David's life. He knows exactly everything about your life, your struggles, your battles. And I know that many of you are going through battles right now and some worse than others, and I understand that. How many of you are currently going through trials right now? Okay, just a couple of hundred of you, okay. If you're not, then, you know, take your two fingers and go right here. We all go through it. I know it's a struggle, and I want to give you just three brief points of how to go through your trials, okay? And how and to maybe to make it easier for you. Number one, you're not going to like too much, is that you embrace your trial that you're going through. Because what's the first thing we do when we go through a trial? We pray, God, get me out of it, right? We want out. But no, you embrace it. It's yours. It belongs to you. It's not mine. You can have it, okay? I got my own. But if you embrace it, you realize that God's teaching you. There's a reason why you're going through it. God's, he's, he's making you stronger through it. He's making you more faithful. He wants you to trust in him more by allowing you to go through these things. Number two, pray for endurance. Embrace your trial, but also pray for endurance. You know, in Hebrews, uh, the writer wrote to the Hebrews, he says, you know, you need endurance, and they did. They were struggling in their faith as believers because they were being persecuted, and they were considering going back to their old traditions. And he said, you need, pers- you need uh, endurance. Pray for endurance. And speaking of endurance, number three is keeping your eyes looking up. I love what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded so by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race of endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking unto Jesus, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. And if anyone knew how to do that, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he went through so much in his life. You talk about a man who went through trials and tribulations. It was like every day. And he called them light afflictions. And the reason why he knew how to do that so well and how he knew how to deal with it and how he could be so content in everything, 
happy because he kept his eyes looking up. This is what he said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. He says, not that I have already attained it or I'm already perfected, meaning I haven't arrived yet. I'm not done yet. God's not done with me. But I press on that I may lay hold of that which, which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. That means he hasn't arrived yet. But one thing I do, and here's what he does. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, he never looked back. He didn't look behind him because so many times, you know, we, we live in yesterday. Yesterday's gone. We can't bring it back. We need to just continue to move forward. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So embrace your trials and your tribulations. Pray for endurance, but keep your eyes looking up. While this story goes on and it talks about this little section here between verses 8 and 12, uh, really shows, unfortunately, the dark side of the, the Jews. And in verse 10, the phrase the Jews, John uses it some 70 plus times and it's really referring to the Jewish leaders. They were so concerned about this man, they never saw anything else but him breaking the law. After he's healed, they see him and they, said, they see him carrying his bed and said, you know, this, you're, you're breaking the law. You're not supposed to carry your bed on the Sabbath. And the man said, the man who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. And they said, who is the man who told you to take up your bed and walk? The man who healed me? Are you getting this? No, they're not getting it. They're not seeing anything besides this man breaking the law. And it says a lot about legalism and what legalism is because when you are legalistic, you tend to miss the blessings of God because what legalism does is it takes the focus off of God and it puts it on yourself, on us. Legalistic, being legalistic can be dangerous because what happens is that it breaks that fellowship with God at times and it affects how we receive his forgiveness. And it also affects how we forgive others. Because in many times when you get too legalistic, you tend to judge people by your standards and not God's standards. Moving on with the story here. I want to just move down to the last section here. Which I think is the, the greatest section, at least for me personally. And this passage of scripture, it, it speaks a lot to my heart. It actually spoke a lot to my heart uh, in my days when I was... Uh, going through a lot of trials. And I see Jesus as this good shepherd here in verse 14. He actually goes out and he finds this man. And, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. You know, back in those days, I don't think they had like orange Nikes or bright green that you could pick a person out. They pretty much all looked the same. And so how did he find this one person? Well, it was his supernatural ability to find him. And the reason why he goes looking for him is amazing because he wasn't finished with him yet. He gave him a physical healing, but God wasn't done with him yet. And we don't know for sure why this man went to the temple. Maybe he went to thank God because he got healed, or maybe because after 38 years he'd never seen the temple and he wanted to see it. But the Lord finds him. And he says to him in verse 14, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. I mean, what could be worse than what happened to him? 38 years in that condition. The only thing I can think of is death. I mean, we know that all sickness is a byproduct of man's original sin, but we also know that there's a natural occurring of disease uh, caused by sinful habits, right? And we see that in our society today. But not all sickness comes from sin. And Pastor Ted talked about this last, last uh, week in John chapter 9. 
Uh, the common belief for the Jews was that, you know, if you're sick, if you have blindness or you have any kind of disease, it must be some kind of sin in your life, whether it's your family sin or, or your sin. But not, all sin does not come, uh, or not all diseases come from sin, but there are some that do. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where people were misappropriating, misusing uh, the Lord's Supper, and Paul called them out on it, and they weren't dealing with it. They weren't calling out sin, and they weren't confessing it. And he goes on and mentions that, you know, the hand of God was against them and on them, and he was causing sickness. And he said, and some of you even falling asleep, which means that some of you are even dying. But I believe the main point that Jesus is telling this man in verse 14 is that sin can have inevitable consequences. But Jesus was showing this man that not only was he healed physically, but he was healed spiritually. I believe by Jesus going out to seek this man again that he was showing him that he was being saved not only from a physical healing, but from death itself. The worst thing that can come upon him. He was the only one that could save from death. And by Jesus seeking him out, I believe that it took the, the, the focus off the sign and wonder and put it on something different, salvation. In verse 14, he says, See, you have been made well, or you have been made whole. The King James uses the word whole, and I love that word because it actually means to be healthy and well in body, but figuratively speaking, it's talking about being of sound mind, being of sound doctrine. It actually means that the person becomes whole in body, mind, and spirit. Jesus made a complete, in this, a complete healing in this man. And I think about this passage here, and I think about the story and what Jesus is talking to this man. And there's so many times that I hear this over and over and over again, especially lately, that people say, I want to see God's power displayed more. And yeah, well, who wouldn't? I'd want to too. But in all reality, we see it all the time. I and mean, we see it in his church all the time, that people are being healed left and right. But I think the main point that I think God is, you know, for us, and I think he knows our hearts, he knows we're but flesh. If we had too many signs and wonders, our focus would be on the signs and wonders and not on the miracle worker. And we see that a lot in Scripture. We see even Jesus, Jesus rebuking his own um, community, saying all you care about is signs and wonders. You're missing the whole point. And I think that's what Jesus' point here is that he's trying to make the point of that, listen, salvation is the greatest healing that we're ever going to receive and ever see. I don't know about you, but I love it every weekend when Pastor Ted says, I see that hand. To me, that's the greatest miracle that we're ever going to see in our lives, is the miracle of salvation. And that's what we see in this testimony. And speaking of the miracle of salvation and speaking of the power of God, I just want to share with you just briefly my story, my testimony, and how God has spared my life so many times my story starts off in uh, East L.A., actually. I was raised and born there. A very dysfunctional home. Um, I mean, when I say dysfunctional, I could, you know, put 31 flavors to shame because it was just filled with just, uh, just so many different things that, uh, um, from fighting, abuse, alcohol, uh, molestation, you name it, uh, go down the line, it's just the over and over again. And, and I know that uh, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this kind of upbringing um, my go-to when I was uh, a child was isolation. I would constantly hide myself. I would lock myself in my room. Uh, thank goodness in 1964 the Beatles came out, so that was my kind of saving grace back then was listening to the Beatles and taking trash cans and beating on them like they were drums. I was raised mainly by my grandparents because um, my mom and dad were constantly separated, and again, the, the fighting that was just uh, was overwhelming. 
The only thing that I was good at was sports. I was terrible in school. I had uh, a lot of learning disabilities that no one picked up on, uh, so I was kind of just pushed through and, and not even really paid attention to. Um, in 1965, my parents got back together. In 1966, my dad and his family, his brothers, they had a machine shop in L.A. They moved it out here to Temecula. Uh, back then, this was 1966, uh, the population was about half of what you see in this room here. Uh, actually, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And the sign said, population, 203. And it's like, whoa, uh, big city here. But um, unfortunately, it didn't change the environment of our home. At age 13, I went to work uh, full-time. I, that was the only other thing I could do while I was work. I worked real hard. Uh, my boss saw me, and he says, hey, would you work full-time? And, you know, legally I wasn't supposed to be because I was still in school, uh, but he paid me under the table. So at 13, I started working full-time, and at 13, I started drinking. That's where I learned how to drink. Um, at the age of 16, I left home. My parents ended up uh, divorced. They moved back to L.A., and they uh, separated and went their own separate ways. Uh, but then um, I decided that I was going to just, you know, do my own thing out here. And at 16, it's like, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous. I mean, you know, what, could you imagine your kid coming at you at 13 and say, hey, I'm, Mom, Dad, I'm starting to drink now, you know. And by the way, at 16, I'm leaving home, you know. I think about that, and I think, how did I even do that? I mean, I, I, you can obviously see God's hand in my life even way back when. But in 1978, God just uh, turned my life upside down. Um, the population back then was starting to grow, and believe it or not, there was a, a, a Christian revival happening out here in, in the 70s. And it gave me a, a good opportunity to mock the Christians, because that's what I did. And every time I mocked them, I find out later that they kept praying for me. Um, and rightfully so, I needed it. But in 1978, uh, I get one of those late-night calls, you know, in the middle of the night. It's like two days before Christmas. My, my dad calls me and says, hey, your mom was found dead. And it's just like, what do you mean found dead? I mean, you know, she's only in her 40s. I could just be found dead. Uh, later to come find out that she was brutally murdered. Uh, to this day, we don't know why or what happened or who it was. Uh, come close to finding out, but it never panned out to anything. Uh, and that's not the point anyway. What it did do is it caused uh, me to look up. God started speaking into my life, and the first thing I did was ran to alcohol, obviously, because that was my go-to. Uh, but it didn't work. For the two days that, or three days that I was uh, contemplating what I should do and, and really just thinking in my mind, you know, if they ever caught this person, I was really coming up with a plan of revenge and how I was going to get this person. But God just kept stopping me in my tracks. And I remember on Christmas Day going to my dad's house, and, you know, Christmas to us was just party. Let's just party it up. And so he remember he was giving me a beer, and I just uh, took a sip of it, and I couldn't even drink it. It just became this bitter taste to me. And so I knew the Lord, you know, I didn't know, I know now, the Lord was starting to work in my heart. And I remember going home that night, and I had this, uh, I went to bed, and I had this fear that just overwhelmed me, and I couldn't, I couldn't get over it. I don't know what it was. I mean, I know what it was now, but the only way I can describe it to you is that I felt like someone was out to kill me. And so I kept getting up, checking the doors and the windows, and I realized that uh, someone was out to get me, but it wasn't a physical thing. It was a supernatural uh, thing. And God opened my eyes, and I looked up to heaven, and I said, Lord, save me. And he did. He radically saved me. He changed my life at that moment. The next morning, I woke up, and I was radically changed. And the first thing I said is, that, you know, one thing I'm going to do is not go to church, and I'm not going to go to Bible studies. Uh, but that changed in a hurry. The first week, I was already all engulfed in Bible study and church, and I couldn't get enough of it. I got involved in 
a worship team and a Christian band. I got involved with prison ministries, became a youth director, all these things I just started doing. Uh, and then about next thing I knew, about 12 years went by, and I was going through all the motions. And the only problem with the, that is that when I became uh, like about the 12th year of my walk with the Lord, I started going through some major trials and some family issues. And being a man that I was, I said, well, I can fix this. You know, I can do this myself. And I kind of pushed God out of the way. And I was so involved with just different ministries that I just took the focus off of what I should have been focusing on. When I should have been being filled up with the Lord, I was just working and doing all these things and just, you know, keeping myself occupied and keeping myself busy when everything all around me was falling apart. And that led me to compromise. And as you probably know, little compromises lead to big compromises. And before I knew it, I was a, a single dad raising three kids. Well, a few years went by. Um, I met uh, Kathy, who I, in spite of my wishy-washy faith at that time, uh, led her to the Lord, uh, later got married, and um, thank goodness God uh, put her in my path because, because of her prayers. And listen, I, I want to just say, don't give up on your prodigal children or, or family members. Just keep praying because, you know, God's going to get them. He will. And I can testify to that because she prayed over and over for me because what happened during the first year of our marriage, uh, I was working two jobs and I needed some a little help to, to get through the day. So I asked this guy, I said, hey man, at work, I said, you, can you get me any speed? And I was thinking, you know, speed back in my day were those little tiny, you know, they called them bennies or crosstops. And uh, he said, yeah. And he pulled out this baggie of this white substance. And I go, what the heck is that? And he goes, well, this is the new speed. It's crystal meth. And so I tried it, and that's all I did. I tried it once, and that was all she wrote. I was hooked. It got so bad, you know, that I would just, uh, one day I told my wife, I said, you know, I, I got to go to the store, and I was going to go get some drugs. And I said, I'll be back. And I never came back. Uh, eight weeks later, I showed up, or she actually found me. Um, and I got really, really bad to where, the bad part of it is where I got uh, involved with the manufacturing of meth. And that was a whole different ballgame. That was different people. It was a whole different environment. I mean, it was the darkest place I've ever been in my life. And, you know, and through this whole time, I was miserable. I mean, I, I, just, I just was so miserable. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't rest. And I know why. I mean, because God just kept coming after me. I mean, I would look over my shoulder and I'd say, why are you still here? Why are you still coming after me? And he wouldn't let me go. And all I can describe it to you as, it was like a haunting. It's just like this, this miserable, unrestful, uneasy feeling that I could not let go. Well, as time went on, and this was a few years that had gone by, and, and this is probably like a, a good four or five years with the worst, were the last two and a half years. Um, I mean, you know, there's a phrase in the Bible that I love. It's probably my, my favorite phrase. It says, but God. I love that because he kept intervening for me over and over again. And I know it was through my wife's prayers. I'm not sure I'd be standing here. There were so many bullets that I dodged. I mean, I could probably tell you at least 20 times that my life was spared uh, and I should just not be standing before you. Back in the 90s, there was an epidemic. They called them the mom and pop um, labs. Uh, there was an epidemic in our nation. It was really, really bad. Uh, the worst number one place in the nation that was really bad was Lake Elsinore at that time. And I got busted over there in Lake Elsinore. And so they were trying to make an um, example because of the, it was so bad. Uh, I got caught with these guys who were actually you know, cooking in this house. And I wasn't a part of it, but uh, I was guilty because I had walked in that house for like about five minutes and came out and we were surrounded by the police. But this is how powerful God works. My, my wife, she just like, she knew about it. She prayed. She goes, Lord, I just, you know, I don't want my husband's reputation ruined. 
And so the next day, the news came out in the paper and, uh, about this bust in Lake Elsinore. Everyone's name was in that paper except mine. Um, I was looking at 25 years, but uh, God had mercy. I came away that uh, I went to superior court and stood before a judge, and he just dismissed all the charges against me. Don't know why. Well, I know why now. Um, but it's just amazing just to see God's just sparing my life over and over and over again. And you think that at that time I would just, I would just break and say, God, I give up. I'm done. But I didn't. And my heart just became so hard towards him, and I just kept going and kept going in the wrong direction. Then one day, as I was walking from one drug house to another, and I had to walk because the Lord made sure I didn't have a car because it always break down. Uh, I was actually at the mechanic, and we were getting high all night, and I decided to go get some more drugs for us, so I'm walking across the street. And I came to this four-way stop. And as soon as I stepped out of, off the curb, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, are you done? And I just broke, and I, I, I just like, I looked at myself, I'm just like, I looked at my hands, and I just said, what had I done? And I just started weeping and just crying, and I just could not stop crying. I just said, what have I done? I'm so sorry, Jesus. What did I do? And the Lord spoke to me during my crying, and I was, he, was, he was saying, you know, you can keep going back and forth the way you're going. He says, and this is going to be your kingdom, and this is where you're going to die. And I looked down the street, and all there was was just this empty field of just brush. And I looked up the street, and he just said, you can come up here to me. And there was this phone booth just sitting in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, phone booth, right? And so before I made my way to that phone booth, I had my pockets full of junk and drugs and paraphernalia, and I had my contacts and everything else in there, and my, I'm talking about my phone number contacts. I threw everything on the ground, and I just ground it until it disintegrated. And I just kept weeping and weeping. And my wife, I didn't know what she thought of me, you know, I mean, if she would ever take me back. I knew as a friend she would help me. And so I called. I called her up at her job talk to the receptionist. I say, hey, this is Jim. This is uh, Kathy's husband. Is she there? And so she puts me on the phone, and I, I swear to you, this is how she answered the phone. She says, are you done? Exact same words the Lord spoke to me. And of course, I just started breaking and said, you know, I need help. And so she came and got me. And we stood in that parking lot probably for an hour, and I just wept and wept and wept. And she took me home, and it took me three days to stop crying. I just could not stop crying. My face was on the ground half the time, and I just kept saying, God, I'm sorry. What did I do? What did I do? The only thing I could pray is, like I said, Lord, I'll be a janitor in heaven if you just take me back. <laughs> so if you ever want to find me in heaven, I'll be cleaning bathrooms, okay? <laughs> no, I don't know. I think God's uh, a lot more merciful than that. But one of the things my wife, she just said, you know what, because this is what you're going to do. She goes, give me your keys, give me your license. She goes, you never answer that front door again. Because I always had people coming to my door, either looking or to buy drugs or looking for me because I, you know, I owed money too. But it's amazing how God protects. My wife prayed over that house, and this is some 23 years later. Not one person ever since she prayed ever come to, came to my door. But I want to just, you know, let you know in closing here, God spared my life, and he actually within a month's time, he healed me. I was going to counseling twice a week with my pastor, and he finally, by after a month, said, hey, you know, I can't do anything more for you. God's just working so quickly in your life. He healed my marriage. You know, I, I walked out on a great job. I went back, and I reconciled with a lot of people. I actually went back to some of the tweakers and, and talked with them, and, and uh, actually my wife led one of them to the Lord. 
But I went back to my job and I told my boss, I said, you know, I apologize for what I did and what I've done and here's my keys. And he says, well, you know, what are you doing now? And I said, nothing. And he says, well, can you start Monday? And I said, yeah, great, you know. And so he gave me my keys back. He also gave me a truck and a gas card and a promotion. And it's just like, what, what, you know? But see, that's what God does. God's the God of the supernatural, you know? And when I look at back in my life and I just think, I get so overwhelmed. And just like Pastor Darius was when he was up here talking about, you know, just the music, the worship. You know, I was sitting there in that last song, Jesus, We Love You. And I just like, I was just getting so choked up because it's just amazing when I come up here and I talk about my life just to reflect on the great things that he's done. You know, there's a, the reason why I chose this passage of scripture is because this verse here where Jesus told this man, he says, do you ask him, do you want to be made well? Jesus had asked me this question over and over again. And I, when I first read this, I just never understood why you would ask this question. Why would you ask this man 38 years in this condition, do you want to be made well? I never understood that. I never understood until I was backslidden. And then I understood. Because Jesus asked me this question. And I remember laying in my bed one day and I was just crying because I, part of me wanted out and part of me didn't. And he said to me, do you want to be made well? And I knew him already from the past. I knew he would heal me. And I just said no. I liked being where I was at. And the only reason why I liked it, because I didn't want to face what was on the other side all the junk that was in me, all the things that I had isolated from and hid from, I knew God would bring them to surface. Actually, when I was in the street that time and I was weeping and crying, at that moment in time, as, as God purged me. All this junk came pouring out of me from mourning my mom's death and my dad's death and all these things that were in my past. It was like God just like purged them and pushed them out of me at that moment. But that's what he does. And really, when you look at this question about Jesus asking this man this question, it may sound rhetorical, but honestly, it's, it's, it's not. Because I think Jesus asking this question, and the reason why he asked it, because not every sick person wants to be made well. And I think in this story, you see that. The reason why people don't want to be made well, because they give up hope. They think this is the condition I need to stay in, and this is where I'm going to stay. And I know there's a lot of you here this morning who come here this morning just heavy-hearted with a lot of things going on in your life. Some of you may come and and maybe have struggles with addiction like I did. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who have bad, bad past like mine and have hurts. You've been hurt and you have a hard time forgiving. Or maybe it's the other way around. You wrong people and you have a hard time asking forgiveness. You know, God wants to make you whole today. This morning I just, you know, I think about marriages. You know, so many of us struggle in marriages and maybe some of you here this morning and you've given up hope on your marriage and you think that it's never going to work. You know, listen, if God can raise the dead, he can resurrect the marriage for sure. And so this morning, I just, you know, as we close in prayer, I want to invite you to come up and get prayed for. Because when you look at this passage of Scripture, when Jesus told this man, he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. You know, figuratively speaking, he's telling this man, get up and start living. You know, I made you whole, now get up and start living. And that's what the Lord wants to do to you uh, this morning.